Lord, I thank you for the time that a small group of us had earlier this morning in our intro to in-town class to think about this. It seems like you were preparing us for this moment in worship. We ask you to open our hearts to love your truth because we know that we can't trust our own experiences. We can't trust human traditions. We can't trust our own desires at any given moment. Um, we need you to reorient us. And so we thank you for the poet who wrote this psalm and for Wendell Kimbrough who set it to a tune that we can sing so that we together could ask you to come and be with us and teach us to love your truth. Especially, Lord, teach us to love the parts of your truth that we may be most uncomfortable with. That's where we will need your help the most. And so we ask you to be our gentle, wise, patient, and gracious teacher today. Amen. You may have heard about what some folks are calling the most significant development in uh, world religion in the past century. It's the rise of the nuns, not women wearing long black gowns and white headdresses, like not, not that kind of nun, but the increasing number of people in our world who would say they don't have any religious affiliation. Don't mistake that for atheism. Someone who says I'm one of the nuns doesn't mean I don't believe in God, but I'm comfortable, more comfortable exercising my spiritual life without being affiliated with another group or movement. What's contributing to that? Well, that'd be a long conversation and it'd probably be pretty complicated, but here's one factor that's certainly playing into it. Many people today are disturbed and discouraged and disappointed by the failures they see in the lives of Christians. Many people today are saying, I, I can work out my beliefs better if I'm not part of a group like yours because they've been hurt by the church. They've been hurt by churches. They're disappointed in the failures of Christian leaders. We could ignore that and just kind of stick our head in the sand and say, that sounds uncomfortable, let's not go there. Or we could downplay it and say, oh, those leaders didn't really fail. Those churches didn't really hurt you that bad. It's not that big a deal. You shouldn't be that disappointed or that discouraged. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. Or we could lean into that pain and we could be honest about it. And we could spend some time reflecting less on the people we're disappointed with and more on Jesus and asking together, how does he deal with his flawed followers? So in the run-up to Easter, that's what we want to do. We want to answer that question. How does Jesus deal with his flawed followers? And to do that, we're going to focus on John's gospel. 
and the events surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection in John's gospel, especially Jesus' interactions with the apostle Peter, um, famously flawed and willing to be open and honest about it. So we'll begin this morning with a scripture reading from John chapter 18. Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into a sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, it's important if you're a follower of Jesus that there's somebody in your life who's helping you to grow someone who's mentoring you or discipling you. That doesn't have to be a formal arrangement. You don't have to have walked up to someone and said, will you be my mentor? But, but are you engaging regularly enough with someone who, who can shape you in deep ways? That's a, an important part of uh, being a follower of Jesus. I found a pretty strange way of doing that in my life life, can you be mentored or discipled by someone who isn't alive anymore? Um, that's, I do have living mentors, by the way, but um, one of the people who has had the most profound impact on my life is a man named Jerem Bars. He and his wife, Vicki, uh, live in St. Louis. Jerem is one of the faculty members at Covenant Seminary, and um, Jerem was discipled by a man named Francis Schaefer. Uh, Francis Schaefer was a pastor in our denomination who moved to Europe at one point to work with children, to tell children good news about Jesus, found himself in a climate where there were plenty of teenagers and college graduates who had deep spiritual questions. And so he and his wife, Edith, started a ministry called Labri, French word for shelter, providing a safe place for people to come gather and ask hard questions. It was 
the 1960s and 70s and 80s version of the rise of the nuns in Europe. And um, <clears throat> Francis Schaeffer passed away in the early 1980s of cancer. So he can't mentor me. But um, I spent some time over the past few years reading through a book called The Letters of Francis Schaeffer and asking God to disciple me through the words that he wrote while he was still living. And so my little journal, I, I write down at the top of the page, Lord Jesus, what are you teaching me through your servant, Francis Schaeffer? Like, that's a helpful discipline for me to remember. I'm not just reading a book. I'm not just making my eyes go over the words on the page. Uh, but I'm really trying to uh, be led by someone who is further along the path of Christian maturity and I am reading through that book, The Letters of Francis Schaeffer. I'll highly recommend it. I don't have a relationship with the publisher, so, you know, I don't get a cut. Um, one of the themes that comes through there is he's trying to help young adults find Christian community. And an answer that comes out prominently is twofold. We must not accept what is poor. And we must not demand what is perfect. If you're looking for a community, a group of people among whom to grow in any way, but especially as a disciple of Jesus, then you've got to find this hard balance. On the one hand, we're not going to settle for what's poor. On the other, we're not going to demand what is perfect. Accepting the poor is like, you know, relaxing the standards, saying, well, yeah, yeah I'm I'm looking for a community that can help me grow, help me mature in my faith in Christ, and these people, well, they'll, they'll do. <laughs> you know, they're not that great at it, and, and they make a ton of, of, of mistakes, but let's just turn a blind eye to it and kind of raise our, uh, take our expectations, they're a little too high, let's, let's just settle. You know, let's, let's, um, let's make the standards kind of painfully low and agree to live with it. On the other hand, we could demand what's perfect. We could raise the standards until they become impossibly high. When we do one of those two things, there are only three possible outcomes. One is I can leave. This church isn't perfect, so I am leaving. This community of people who claim to love Jesus, one of them made a mistake one time, I'm out. Right? We raise the standards and make them impossibly high. One outcome is we just leave. Another outcome is I can stay, but I can close down my heart. I can say, you know, I'm here, but whatever. I'm here, but you've disappointed me too many times. I'm here, but the standards here are so low. I don't really trust you that much. I'm not really going to let you shape me, but I'm not going to leave. I'm just not really going to engage very deeply. So I can leave or I can stay but close down. Or the third outcome is I can stay and I can dominate. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to whip you losers into shape. Bunch of slackers. We'll raise the bar around here. Like those are the options, aren't they? If we're going to accept what is poor or demand what is perfect, we're going to wind up leaving, we're going to stay and check out, 
or we're going to stay and try to become the boss of everyone and, and become replacements for the Holy Spirit in the lives of other people. Faith in Jesus doesn't insist on any of those outcomes. Faith in Jesus doesn't insist on those outcomes because the Jesus whom we trust doesn't, he doesn't accept what is poor and he doesn't demand what is perfect. Let's convince ourselves from the scriptures that Jesus doesn't demand what is perfect. He knows that some people who claim to be his disciples actually are not. Our text tells us the story of Judas betraying Jesus. Judas, knowing that Jesus had been meeting in this garden every night during the Passover week, knowing exactly where to find him, Jesus knows that one of his disciples isn't really a disciple. He knows that here's this person who's been saying for years, I trust you, Jesus, I'll follow you, I'll go wherever you lead me, isn't really living up to that at all. And this knowledge troubles Jesus. If you look back at John chapter 13 um, and verse 21, Jesus has just announced that, that someone is going to betray him. And the verse says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So Jesus knows that some people who, who say they're part of the church and say they represent him actually aren't, they actually don't. And he's troubled by that, but it doesn't derail his confidence in God's purposes. And so he's able to say, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Father, your purpose has been to give me certain people to trust me and to love me and, and to do that across centuries. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays for those who aren't alive yet who will one day follow him. So he's bothered by the fact that there are some people who say they love him who don't actually and yet that doesn't so derail his confidence that he says, you know what? If one of my 12 disciples is going to betray me, I'm just giving up on the whole thing. I'm out. It's perfection or nothing for me. That's, that's not the approach that Jesus takes. So that, that's how Jesus deals with knowing that there's someone like Judas in the mix. It'd be easy to turn a finger toward Judas and say, yeah, people like that, they're awful. The thing is, though, Jesus knows that all of his disciples, even the ones who really are his disciples and really do love him and really do trust him, that we are all weak. He knows that. He knows we're susceptible to confusion and temptation and utter spiritual collapse. When, when Peter fails in this text and pulls out his sword and starts hacking, now don't think long Scottish broadsword, you know, brave heart, sword taller than, than the uh, warrior, the, the sword in view here could be a dagger. It, it's a short sword. 
So this is, you know, Peter just doing something. Jesus isn't shocked that Peter is failing in this moment. How do we know that? Well, if we've been reading John's gospel, Jesus not only predicted that Judas was going to betray him, later in John chapter 13, um, Peter said this, Lord, I want to follow you now wherever you're going. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus knows that even his closest disciples, people who really do deeply love him, are capable of incredible failure. This is in keeping with a theme. It's not just Peter. Like if you, if you read through this section of John's gospel, his disciples are getting it wrong continually. And so you come across, you know, ch- chapter uh, 14, verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you this long, and you still don't know who I am, Philip? Like there's this constant sense that even even his best followers are confused, don't have it all together, don't know everything, don't get everything right, and are capable in moments of pressure of utter collapse. Jesus knows this. He knows that we are weak. He knows that we are naturally not good at the spiritual life. If we were, why would he need to be here in the first place? Jesus doesn't demand what is perfect. And yet, that is never meant to be an excuse in relationship with him. It's never meant to be the thing where we say, oh, I'm sorry, you've been hurt by a Christian church? Well, you should know from the beginning that no Christian is perfect. And so if you were hurt, it's your own fault for expecting perfection. I mean, we just kind of got to live with this weakness. It's not the way Jesus approaches this, right? He doesn't say, oh, Peter, Like, I knew you were going to have a rough night, so it's okay if you want to cut off some more ears. You want to hack a few more noses? Go right for it. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be perfect. That's not Jesus' response at all. I'm not demanding perfection. I know your weakness. I know you're susceptible to failure. But I want you to be close enough to me that you can be changed and transformed. How do we know this? So Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. And if a branch is closely connected to the vine, then enough life can flow into it that that branch will begin to produce real fruit. But if that branch is separated from the vine, then it will shrivel and die. And Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I know you're so weak that without me, you can't accomplish anything that is of lasting and real good in this world, and yet I want you near me. 
And that's why we want to be near him, <laughs> because he's that gracious and tender to people that he knows are weak. Jesus doesn't demand what is perfect. He invites us to have faith in him and depend on him and stay near to him. He also doesn't accept what's poor, right? He confronts Peter. Peter has this kind of bravado moment. Jesus, if you're going to your death tonight, I shall go with you. And Jesus says, enough with the arrogance. Enough with pretending you aren't weak. I'm not going to accept it. We're not going to put up with this veneer of, I have it all together. I'm Mr. Spiritual Superhero. Forget it. We're not going to live with that. That is a poor substitute for genuine faith in me. So, Peter, I got to tell you a hard truth. Before the night is over, you're going to say three times that you never even met me. You're going to say three times you got no idea who I am. Peter, you're going to have to go to a deep, dark place to get over this arrogance. Jesus doesn't accept the kind of arrogance that would keep us from seeing our own weaknesses. He challenges us to become more committed to a fruitful life. Again, that teaching about the vine, this grapevine and these branches that grow on it that produce grapes. He's like, I'm not going to be satisfied with this kind of coasting through the Christian life where I don't care if I'm a good grape producer or not. I just be my little on branch over here growing leaves happily in a corner. Jesus is like, no. I'm the vine. You're the branch. I want to put enough life through you that fruit is going to grow. And if I have to prune you occasionally to get more fruit to grow, I will. I'm not going to settle for a second rate. You just better know that's what life with me is like. He expects to see the power that flows through him to us, transforming us, changing us, so that we become more loving and more obedient and more dependent on him. How do I know those things? Read John chapter 15. That's exactly what he talks about. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Stay connected to me. Stay close to me. Stay dependent on me. And one of the fruits of that will be love. And one of the fruits of that will be obedience. And one of the fruits of that will be you want to remain in me. The, the King James word is abide. We don't use that word much these days. Jesus doesn't demand what's perfect. He doesn't settle for what is poor. He invites us to put our faith in him. Notice how Jesus shifts the focus toward himself in the, in the stories that we read. So Judah shows up with this band of soldiers and some uh, officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. It would be like uh, the, the, the police of the temple courts. He shows up with these folks carrying lanterns and torches and, oh yeah, don't forget, they're carrying weapons. And Jesus' first reaction isn't, Judas, you're a scallywag. His first thought isn't on a human being who may or may not be doing a good job of being a disciple. The first thing he does is to shift attention to himself and away from Judas. 
Whom do you seek? Well, he knows the answer. <laughs> you didn't come here looking for Thomas. You didn't come here looking for Peter. You came here looking for me. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. Now, our English translations say, I am he, which is a perfectly legitimate way to translate this short Greek sentence. But the Greek sentence is just two words, I am. It's an echo of God's name from the Old Testament. I am who I am. I am the one who exists. In the moment of betrayal, the focus is not on the betrayer. It is on Jesus and his authority. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them, the text says. It's honest about Judas betraying Jesus. It doesn't hide from that. And yet the focus is clearly on Jesus. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Um, If you read John chapter 7, you'll see that once before, the chief priests and Pharisees sent out these temple police to arrest Jesus. And they come back empty-handed, and they're like, what's wrong with you guys? We give you one job to do. Right? Come on, man. You know that, that uh, ESPN segment called Come On, Man? It, it often runs like, you know, they're, they're evaluating a, a football game and, you know, you got one job to do. You got, all you got to do is punt the ball. And come on, man. You can't even do your one job. We send you out to arrest one guy and you come back empty-handed. What's wrong? And they say, but he teaches with so, so much authority. Everybody is listening to him. Like, how could we arrest him? The same kind of thing is happening here. The focus is not on Judas and his betrayal. The focus is on Jesus and the authority and power with which he speaks. They drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said again, I told you that I am. So if you're seeking me, let these men go. This is not about them. This is about me. That is, that is the recipe for Christian community. And you have been hurt by the church at some point. If you've hung around any church long enough, you have been hurt. Me too. I have been hurt by the church. Sometimes I've been on the the end doing the hurting as a pastor. That happens. And sometimes I've been on the receiving end of the hurt. But the recipe for Christian community isn't looking for a pain-free place where everyone is perfect and nobody ever gets hurt. The recipe is looking for a place where the focus is, is on Christ at the center. And that will hold things together even when Judas, the betrayer, shows up. That will hold things together even when naive Peter, with his arrogant boasting, pulls out his dagger and decides following the Prince of Peace leads naturally to hacking somebody's head. No, Peter, what are you thinking? Jesus shifts the attention away from the failure of human beings and toward himself. He does that with Peter. Peter drew his sword, 
struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. The servant's name is recorded for us, Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, Peter, I'm a perfectionist. Pack your things and go. I never want to have anything else to do with you because you fell short of my perfect standards. You know that's not what he said. That's not what Tom read on our video this morning. Nor did Jesus say, it's okay, Peter. You know, um, everybody makes mistakes. So don't worry about it. No big deal. Actually, Jesus speaks to Peter very sharply. Um, Our English translations kind of smooth this out. Put your sword into its sheath. The text says, put the sword in its sheath. Put that thing where it belongs. Why would Jesus speak so sharply? Well, in the moment, all of his disciples are in danger of being killed. Remember, (laughs) they're outnumbered by people carrying weapons. Peter, you're a little sword. You're going to get every, I'm trying my best to make sure I don't lose one of you. And so I'm offering to let you escape and they arrest me. And Peter, you're going to undo all of that. Put the sword away, Peter. There's some urgency in his voice. But notice how quickly Jesus shifts the focus from Peter's failure to his own mission. What does he say next? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I don't know about you, but if this is me, I want to pause a minute and I want to have a little one-on-one with Peter. I want to be like, guys, can you give us a second? I got to go over here and have a quick discipleship. Peter, what the heck are you thinking, you bozo? You're going to get us all killed. Instead, what you see is this remarkable restraint. Peter, put the sword away. And let's focus our attention on what's really most important about this night. We're here in this garden called Gethsemane, and I've been praying, and I've been asking the Father that if he could, to let this cup of his wrath that I'm about to, to drink so that you will never have to. I've asked if there's any other way if he would let that cup pass. And repeatedly, he has said, there's no other way. And so my prayer has been again and again and again, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And now Peter, the most important thing about this night is not that you're going to deny me three times. The most important thing about this night is not that you thought violence was the right approach, that you've forgotten everything I've said about how to love your enemies. The most important thing about this night, Peter, is that I'm going to be arrested so you don't have to be. The most important thing about this night, Peter, is that I am getting ready to drink this cup of suffering and sorrow and God's judgment so that you never have to. You see how Jesus deals with flawed followers? He deals with his flawed followers not by leaving 
soldiers, arrest them all. I'm out of here. He doesn't deal with us by shutting down his heart. Judas and Peter in one night, whatever. I just go through the motions. And he doesn't start to whip the losers into shape. Judas is out. Peter is out. The rest of you 10, you better believe that after I'm resurrected, I'm going to put you through spiritual boot camp. Jesus doesn't do any of those things. He deals with flawed followers by laying down his life to redeem us. If we try to build a community or any relationship, what we're saying today about the Christian community and, and, and f- finding a healthy relational environment to grow as a follower of Jesus, it applies to almost any kind of relationship, right? Try finding a perfect spouse. Try finding a perfect friend who will never hurt you. Won't work. So it can be applied to almost any relationship. If we try to build that around human ability, it will never work. If we're going to build a place for spiritual growth around human ability, then we're either going to be very confident of human abilities and we're going to set perfectionistic standards that no one can meet because we have so much faith in human capacity that we're naive. Or we have so little faith in human capacity that we set the standard so low that anybody could meet it. And we wind up not being a Christian community at all. But there's a third way. It's to build a community that's, that's built not around our faith in human ability or our lack of faith in human ability, but to build a community around our faith in Jesus that says somehow Jesus is willing to love people who are not perfect and yet continue to call them into growth so that we don't become satisfied with our weaknesses and we don't use that as an excuse. It actually gives us courage to approach one another and say, I am sorry, I have hurt you. Will you please forgive me? Why? I'm not afraid our relationship is going to die if I have to say that to you one day. Because our relationship isn't built on my ability to fool you into thinking I'm perfect. And it's not built on my confidence in your readiness to forgive me. It's built, on, it's built on something bigger than all of that put together. It's built on Christ and trusting the one who would love us enough to say, I know how weak you are. I know how needy and foolish you are. And yet I love you enough to drink the cup that the Father has given me so that you will never have to. We 
We don't settle for what's poor. We don't demand what's perfect. We put our faith in Christ who loves and transforms weak and needy people because he is full of grace. Let's take a moment and pray together. Lord Jesus, forgive me. There are times when I have left. I have withdrawn from relationships. I have pulled back. And I have, uh, in arrogance, said, I'm the perfect one here and nobody else can live up to my standards. Forgive us for the times we have done that. There are times we shut down our hearts and and we, we kind of adopt a whatever attitude toward our relationships even our relationships with your followers. Forgive us. Forgive us for the moments when we respond by by thinking that we're the spiritual experts who can whip everybody else into shape. All of these are approaches we take when we're trying to build a community that's based around faith in us. Help us to have faith in you. Lord, some of us have hurt others. And some of the disappointment and discouragement that others are feeling about the church is because we have caused it. Would you help us to repent? Would you help us to restore those relationships? Give us courage to say, I'm sorry, where we need to. Some of us have been hurt by Christians, we've been hurt by the church. And we've been maybe too quick to run away. Give us courage to step back in because we trust you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace and mercy to us. We pray in your name. Amen.